Well, I'm excited about today. We are beginning a Christmas series called Evergreen. And this is going to be a unique look at Christmas. Uh, With that word evergreen, you might think that this series is going to have something to do with trees. And that's absolutely right. This time of year, trees are kind of a big deal. In fact, let's do a quick survey. How many of you have already put up your Christmas tree this year? Let's see some hands. Yeah, quite a few of you. In the Hartley house, we haven't quite gotten to that yet, but we've promised the kids it's going to happen very soon. So yes, trees are a big deal at Christmas, but trees are also a big deal in the Bible. You can go back to the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. In the story of Adam and Eve, trees play a major role. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil that is the most significant one in that story. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat any fruit in the garden except the fruit from this one tree. And we know what happened, right? Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And because of that act of rebellion, uh, that brought on all kinds of consequences that we're still dealing with today. And the point is, God allows us to choose. We can trust in him and be blessed, or we can reject him and be cursed. There's also an important tree at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. It's the tree of life, which is only found in heaven. In Revelation chapter 22, we read that the leaves of this tree will be used for the healing of the nations. Uh, That's an amazing thought, isn't it? You can also find lots of other references to trees in the Bible. For instance, Psalm 1 describes a person who delights in God, who delights in his word. Psalm 1 verse 3 says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So in that verse, a tree symbolizes spiritual health and strength and fruitfulness. Throughout the Bible, trees are a big deal. For the next few weeks, though, we're going to look at a different kind of tree. We're going to spend time in the Gospel of Matthew, which starts with a family tree. It's the genealogy of Jesus. And at first glance, it just looks like a list of names. Not very exciting. It's the kind of thing you'd normally skip over when you read the Bible. But in the past few years, I have come to really appreciate this genealogy for lots of reasons. If we take these names and scratch beneath the surface, we find a lot of amazing stories. We also find truths that apply to our lives. So let's jump in. I'm going to read the first few verses of Matthew chapter 1. Here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, that's just the beginning. And from there, Matthew adds almost 40 names to this list. So when Matthew sat down to write the story of Jesus, why did he begin this way? Would it not make more sense to start out with some dramatic scene that would pull us in? Actually, Matthew knew exactly what he was doing. He was writing specifically to a Jewish audience. And in Judaism, your family tree was kind of like your birth certificate. 
So before he writes about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, Matthew presents his pedigree. Now, for Jews to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they needed to know that he came from the proper lineage. For instance, Scripture said the Messiah would be born into the line of David. That was a well-known prophecy. It was a promise. So this list of ancestors would be very interesting to Matthew's Jewish readers. They would be scanning those names and ticking off the boxes like, yep, that one checks out, that checks out. This, this Jesus so far, it looks like he's legit. But here's what I love about this list. You might expect to find a few of these names, but some of the people who show up in this genealogy are surprising, even shocking. And I'm convinced that God did that intentionally. He's making a point here. He has a plan to include outsiders and outcasts and people with serious flaws. I believe the message is clear. Jesus is willing to accept anyone into his family, and that is very, very good news. So leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at a few specific limbs on Jesus' family tree. The idea from the, for this series came from a preacher named Aaron Brockett, and he highlighted just a few individuals from this genealogy, and we're going to follow that same pattern. We'll start with a name that I read a minute ago, Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac and the father of Judah. And if you grew up going to Sunday school, you might expect to see that name in Matthew chapter 1. Jacob is one of those old patriarchs, one of the founding fathers of Israel. And he's kind of a hero. And while that is certainly true, we should also recognize that Jacob is a hero with some major flaws. He's far from perfect. He came from a very dysfunctional family, and he's also pretty dysfunctional himself. He's conniving. He's manipulative. He's a con man. He is a control freak. He makes a whole series of bad decisions. He lies to his father. He cheats his brother. He marries four different women. And he just keeps running away from his problems. In a lot of ways, I would not want Jacob as a role model for my own kids. But you know, I love that this character shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. I, I appreciate the fact that Jesus has a lot of dysfunction in his ancestry. And here's why. Take a look at this Christmas tree. It looks really good, doesn't it? It's got a great shape. It's got that triangle thing going that we all love to see in a Christmas tree. And the color is good. I can't see any dead branches or brown needles. It's a perfect shade of green. And then all the limbs are spaced out perfectly. There's no open spaces or blank spots. So this is a great-looking tree. There's only one problem with it, though. It's fake. It's a fake tree. Uh, a real Christmas tree is going to have some imperfections. When you carry a real tree into the house, you're going to get some sap on your hands. That thing is going to shed needles all over the floor, and you'll still be finding those needles in April. And a real Christmas tree is kind of like a family. See, the only perfect family is one that's fake. Real families are dysfunctional in one way or another. 
we can find a lot of hope in that. We can find hope in the story of Jacob. Because yes, he did come from a messed up family. And in a lot of ways, Jacob was messed up himself. In the end, though, we find out that God still had a plan for Jacob. And when Jacob finally turns to God with a broken heart, ready to repent, God uses him in a powerful way. Same is true for all of us. We have dysfunction. We have darkness in our past. But your past no longer defines you when your identity is in Christ. And that's our main takeaway for today. Your past no longer defines you when your identity is in Christ. But it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to believe it in the deepest part of your soul. So we're going to take a closer look at the story of Jacob. And if you're paying attention, you might just see yourself in this story. Now, we don't have time to cover Jacob's life in detail. There's just too much in in the Bible about his life. But we can look at just a few episodes that will help us understand who he is. And I'll start with a little background. Jacob's grandfather was a man named Abraham. Years and years earlier, God made a great promise to Abraham. He took Abraham outside and he said, look up at the stars. You see all of those? Try to count those stars. It's impossible, right? Well, one day you will be the father of a great nation and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham believed in God's promise. Even though it would have seemed unlikely to most people, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were well past the years of childbearing. But of course, God did keep his promise. And that began with a son named Isaac. Isaac grew up and he married a woman named Rebekah. And after some time, Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys. And one of those two boys is named Jacob. On the day these twins are born, we see a pattern that's going to play out in the years to come. The first boy was born with a lot of red hair. Uh, In fact, the Bible says his whole body was like a hairy garment, which would make for some interesting baby pictures. But because of his appearance, Isaac and Rebekah named this boy Esau. And that name probably means hairy. But immediately after Esau is born, his brother came right behind him. And I mean right behind him. Esau's twin was actually clutching onto his brother's heel. So again, Isaac and Rebekah tried to think of an appropriate name, and they landed on Jacob. And that was an interesting choice. The name Jacob literally means he grasps the heel. But that name was also a common saying among the Hebrews, and this saying had more of a negative connotation. Jacob could also mean he deceives, he manipulates, he supplants, He usurps the position of another. So the die is cast. And you can see a storm coming, can't you? Now, let's fast forward a few years and we'll look at the first episode that reveals some of Jacob's character. This chapter could be called Jacob Snags a Birthright. So the boys are older now and these two brothers are about as different as they could possibly be. Esau is a man's man. He loved the outdoors. He loved hunting. And Jacob was pretty much the opposite. 
The Bible says that Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. And their daddy clearly liked Esau best, and Jacob was more mama's boy. Now, Jacob was also smart and conniving, and he used those traits to his advantage. And on this particular day, Esau returned from a hunt, and he was starving. Jacob was sitting at home, as usual. He was cooking a pot of stew. So Esau smelled that stew, and he was like, oh, man, that smells good. Come on, Jacob, give me some of that. And Jacob said, absolutely, bro. I'd love to share with you. However, this stew is not free. If you want it, you have to sell me your birthright. And we have to understand the importance of a birthright in that culture. That one word included a whole list of benefits. Benefit number one, when the father died, a birthright made you the religious leader of the family. Basically, Esau would become the priest of the home. Number two, a birthright gave you a double portion of the inheritance. So if your family had two sons, the one with the birthright would inherit two-thirds of the fortune, and the other one would only inherit one-third. So that's a big difference in money and property. Now, the third benefit of this birthright was unique to this particular family. Esau would be the owner of that covenant blessing that God gave Abraham, which was a big deal. So you put all these things together, and it's obvious that this bowl of stew was outrageously overpriced. But Esau is the kind of guy that makes really bad decisions when he's super hungry. Jacob knows that. And he's more than happy to take advantage of his brother's short-sighted lunacy. So he did. Esau agreed to the deal. He sold his birthright for beans and broth. And in that moment, I'm sure the stew tasted really good. In the long run, though, that little exchange gave Esau a deep resentment for his brother. But it only gets worse from there. The next chapter could be called, Jacob Steals a Blessing. And that does sound familiar to the last episode, but this time, Jacob turns deception into an art form. A few more years pass, and at this point, Isaac, the father, is very old. He's grown blind. Looks like he doesn't have long to live. But before he dies, Isaac wants to give his blessing to his son Esau. And like the birthright, a father's blessing was very significant in that culture. A father's blessing could have ramifications that would last for generations. Obviously, a deceiver and a manipulator would see an opportunity here. And in this episode, we see that Jacob's deceitfulness was passed down from his mom, Rebecca. Rebecca wanted that blessing for her favorite son, so she comes up with a scheme Rebecca knew that her aged, blind husband could be tricked. And she tells Jacob to go into his father, pretending to be Esau with the goal of taking that blessing away from his brother. Jacob was like, Mom, are you sure that's going to work? And she said, of course it'll work. We'll dress you up in Esau's clothes and we'll cover you with goat skins to make you nice and hairy. And your father won't know the difference. So Jacob goes along with the plan. He walks in to Isaac and he says, 
I am Esau, your firstborn. Uh, Please eat some of the food that I brought and then give me your blessing. Isaac was a little suspicious, so he touched him and he said, Your hands are hairy like Esau, but your voice sounds like Jacob. And and Jacob said, No, Dad, I'm really Esau. I'm really Esau. Finally, Isaac said, Come closer and kiss me. And this next part is so dramatic, I'll, I'll just read it for you. Genesis 27, verse 27. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me! Me too, my father! But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightfully named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Now, Esau was not the sharpest tool in the shed, but you got to feel a little sympathy for this guy, right? Once again, he's been swindled and this time it was outright theft. So Esau's resentment grows into complete hatred and he makes a promise he says i will kill my brother jacob somehow rebecca got wind of esau's threat so she sends jacob away to live with her brother laban so let's pause for a second jacob does not look like a hero does he he's self-centered he uses people to his own advantage He's got big ambitions, and he will do whatever it takes to get what he wants. Like I said, he's a control freak. He's learned how to manipulate a situation to get results. And this is a good place to compare ourselves with Jacob. Do you like the feeling of being in control? A lot of us do, don't we? And do you try to arrange your world to be the way you want it to be? Do you have a tendency to try to make things happen? You know, in some ways, those traits are not necessarily bad. Uh, We actually need people who can overcome obstacles and get things done. However, that desire for control can sometimes lead us to run people over. 
we can start to take advantage of others. We can start to rationalize bad or even sinful decisions because we just want results. But we can all learn something from Jacob. The more we try to control our lives, the more our lives will spin out of control. We learn that from Scripture. Instead of trusting in our own abilities and our own cleverness, we need to put our trust in God. Let him take control. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. But at this point in Jacob's story, he hasn't learned that yet. Let's skip ahead a few more years to another chapter. Jacob collects a few wives. Now remember, Rebekah sent Jacob away to live with her brother, Laban. Jacob goes to work for Laban, tending his flocks. And at one point, Laban said, Jacob, I don't expect you to work for me for free. How can I pay you? And Jacob said, well, now that you ask, I've taken a liking to your daughter, Rachel. And if you give me Rachel as my wife, I will work for you for seven years. Now, Laban agreed, and Jacob does work for seven years. But Laban was as much of a manipulator as Jacob. So at the end of that seven years, Laban pulls a trick of his own. He has an older daughter named Leah, and Leah is still single. Laban wants Leah to get married before his younger daughter, Rachel. So Laban throws a big wedding feast. And at the end of that night, after lots of partying, Jacob is not exactly clear-headed. And when Jacob arrives at the honeymoon suite, Laban sends in Leah instead of Rachel. And the next morning, Jacob wakes up and he's like, wrong daughter, wrong daughter. He is furious. But Laban says, calm down, Jacob. If you work another seven years, I'll give you Rachel as well. And this time, Jacob was allowed to marry Rachel first and then work another seven years. So Jacob agrees, and now he has two wives. And immediately, it's obvious to Leah and everyone else that Jacob loves Rachel the best. So this is an absolute mess. And how did we get here? Jacob took control of a situation because he was trying to get the girl of his dreams. Laban took control of a situation because he wanted his daughter, Leah, to be set up with a husband. And because of these manipulators, a new dysfunctional family is born. And things only go downhill from there. To make a long story short, after more manipulation from Jacob and Leah and Rachel, he ends up with four wives. He's got a bunch of kids from a bunch of different women. So that's not really a recipe for a harmonious household. Like I said, the more we try to control our lives, the more our lives spin out of control. And this is a good time to ask a question. When your life feels out of control, what do you do? Do you worry? Do you shut down? Do you lash out? Or do you double down and try to get that control back? In a year like this one, with so much upheaval and uncertainty, I'm sure that all of us have had that sense that things are kind of spinning out of control. 
And I'm sure all of us have been tempted to respond in a way that is unhealthy or even sinful. But let's go back to those words from Proverbs. Trust in the Lord. Give him control of your life. Don't depend on your understanding. Let God direct your path. But what if you've already messed up? What if you have a long list of regrets? Well, if you feel like you're in a deep hole and you don't know how to get out, this is where we learn how to trust in God with all of our heart. So let's look at one last episode from Jacob's life. Jacob has all these wives now. He's got all these children. And as the years go by, he actually becomes quite rich He works for Laban for six more years, and he accumulates a lot of livestock, a lot of material possessions. And if you're keeping track, Jacob has been away from his original home for 20 years by this point. That's a lot of time. But a new chapter is about to be written. And this one could be called, Jacob Gets a New Name. This chapter starts with a direct message from God. Genesis 31, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So that's a good thing, right? God wants Jacob to go back to his old stomping grounds, and he'll be reunited with old friends and his family. Well, that would be a good thing, except Jacob and Esau did not exactly leave on good terms, did they? In fact, Esau promised to kill him. But despite that threat, Jacob packs up the family, and he starts the long journey home. Along the way, he learns that Esau is in the neighborhood. So Jacob sends a few men ahead to give Esau a message, and that message was basically, you still mad, bro? Later on, those men return with a report. Esau is on his way with 400 men. As you can imagine, Jacob is terrified. This situation is beyond his control. But this time, he makes a good decision. Jacob turns to God. Genesis 32, verse 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord You who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. Now, this is huge right here. We're seeing a new side of Jacob. He is scared, but he's also humble. And he's honest. He says, God, I need your help. I know I don't deserve it. I I am unworthy. But I'm asking you to deliver me. My life is in your hands. And a prayer like that is exactly what God wants to hear from us. There's a great verse in Psalm 51 that says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. A broken heart. A repentant heart. A heart that says, God, I give up control. I give everything over to you. When we go to God with that kind of attitude, he is more than willing to receive us, to bless us, to get us off the wrong path and get us back on his path. 
And it's great to see that play out in Jacob's life. On the night before he meets Esau, Jacob and his family have stopped at the bank of a river. Jacob sends his wives and his children and his possessions across the river, but he hangs back alone. And on that night, a very strange thing happens. Let's go back to Genesis 32, starting with verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So there he goes again. He's, he's still trying to control the situation. It's hard to break old habits. But then the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. It's that old name. It's that identity that he hasn't been able to shake. Deceiver, manipulator, usurper. But look at that next verse. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, I realize this passage raises a lot of questions, like who exactly is that man? Is he an angel? Is this an early manifestation of Jesus? Bible scholars have tried to figure that out for a long time, and I can't give you a definitive answer here. But it would actually make sense if this was Jesus. Because as we look at the New Testament, Jesus has a pattern of changing people's names. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. And with a new name, that person gets a new identity. And that's exactly what happens here. Jacob gets a new name. From now on, he won't be known as a deceiver. His name will be Israel. Of course, Israel becomes the name of a whole nation. Israel is the name of God's chosen people. And do you see the significance of this? God says, Jacob, you are no longer defined by your dysfunctional family. You're no longer defined by your past. From the very beginning, God had a great plan for Jacob. And finally, Jacob caught up with that plan. But we have to go back to the turning point. Jacob came to God with a broken and repentant heart. And we have to, we have to notice that Jacob got honest. He, there's an important lesson for us here. God will not bless who you pretend to be. You know, in this pandemic, it's very common for us to wear a mask. But when you go to God... It's a terrible idea to put on a mask and pretend to be someone you really aren't. God sees you. He knows your heart. He knows the good and the bad and the ugly. And the amazing thing is, even at your worst, he still loves you. He's not shocked. He's, he's not ready to give up on you. He wants to bless you. He wants you to experience his love. So you can be honest with him. You know, this is one of the great things about Christmas. In Christmas, God says, I want to give you a gift that you don't deserve. That's why Jesus came. He is the gift that we don't deserve. And we see this in Matthew chapter 1. 
Look at that family tree. There is a beautiful message here. You don't have to be fake. And you don't have to be defined by your dysfunctional family. You can get a new name and a new identity because of Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm so grateful that God loves us. And I'm so thankful that Christ died for us. But those things are even more meaningful because of that little phrase there, while we were still sinners. God looked at you and he said, I see what's in your past and I see the mess that you have made, but I love you anyway. So if you already have a relationship with Jesus, you can go to God with confidence. Your sins are forgiven. You've been washed clean. You are a new creation. Now, like Jacob, God may confront you. He may discipline you. He may tell you to get off this path and get back onto his path. But he does that out of love, too. The point is, you can trust him. You can be honest with him. And you can rest in giving him control. Now, if you do not yet have a relationship with Jesus, that rest and that peace is available to you as well. Just go to God in complete honesty. Give him control. Give your life over to Jesus. Let him give you a new name and a new identity. It's the greatest gift you could receive this Christmas. Your past no longer defines you when your identity is in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the message of Christmas. That you loved us while we were still sinners. And you sent the greatest gift ever. And if we come to you in honesty, with a broken and repentant heart, we can receive the gift of a relationship with you. We can be forgiven. And for those of us who already have that relationship, I pray that we can rest, not try to hold on to control, not hold on to worry, but to rest in you, that everything is in your hands. Lord, if there is anyone listening right now who does not yet have that relationship, I pray that they will respond to your love, give their lives over to you, and find hope in Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.